Who was the neighbor? The one who acted out of mercy. That word mercy is at the center of many traditional prayers in churches like ours and churches unlike ours. In many congregations, mercy is the center of everything their theology focus upon. Lord, have mercy. The, in Greek, it comes out as Kyrie eleison. When I was in seminary in 1985, there was a number one song by Mr. Mister. Do you remember this song? Does somebody remember it? Can, raise your hand. <laughs> Molly Hagel remembers it back there. Molly, you can sing it next Sunday if, you, if you'd like. There's a, there's a line in this song that says, Kyrie eleison down the road that I must travel. I love that line. When I was in seminary, I thought, this is great. Here's the Greek that I'm studying. It's in a number one hit across the United States. This is proof that you can go to seminary, become a pastor, and be cool. Sadly, I learned two years later that's not true and will never be. I'm sorry to admit this to Tim Van Sant, but it's just not ever going to be true if you've studied all this stuff. Kyrie eleison, down the road that I must travel, though, is theologically perfect. Do you need mercy in your life? Do you ever have moments when you, maybe you don't use those exact words. Maybe it's, I'm sorry, or forgive me, or help me, but... Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. As we stumble and bumble and fumble and humble ourselves by our own foolishness, that prayer, that prayer can be a way to redirect, to recenter, to bring us back into focus. Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. In our church, whenever we have a Kyrie, we refer to it that way as a Kyrie, a simple one word. It may be a sing, a sung and response. It may be uh, a, a, a read together in unison, Lord have mercy. We do that sometimes on special occasions. Maybe you recall at the service of lament and hope following the horrific murder of the children at school in Uvalde, Texas. We paused near the beginning of the service for a Kyrie. When it began, Kara Lavelle, just 10 years old, confidently stepped into the lectern here to my left. And she looked out at the congregation and said, Lord, have mercy. Kyrie, eleison. Many of you told me after the service was over that for you, that was the most poignant moment in the entire hour of worship together. Somehow the sight of seeing this little girl, 10 years old, the same age of some of those who lost their lives at school in Texas a few days before. For you, you said to me at the door, that's when the tears came. That's when I, I felt I, I wanted to fall on my face in prayer saying, yes, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. Here was this child praying for the adults, the adults in the United States of America who can't seem to figure out how to solve the scourge of gun violence in our land. Kyrie eleison. 
I read this week a theologian who pointed out that in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they use the Kyrie through almost all of their services. And in several of them, it's repeated over and over and over again. She talked with this one particular uh, Eastern Orthodox priest and asked him, what is the longest? What is the, what is the, what is the service where that phrase is repeated the most? Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. He answered immediately and replied saying, oh, it's the elevation of the cross. It's a service that happens on September 14th when we remember Christ on the cross being elevated and then the cross being planted in the ground, which by the way is historically correct. It's on that day that we sing the Kyrie more than any other. The author asked how many times? 636. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy, Kyrie eleison. The writer of this article then said, wrote this, the way we pray gets into our bones. It practically knocked me out of my chair when I encountered it earlier this week. It's a simple truth. It's something I've said before, something similar that I've said before. I've heard other preachers say this. The way we pray gets into our bones, gets into our souls, into our hearts and, and our minds. Yes, but there's just something about where you are at a certain moment in life when a simple truth suddenly just seems more real than, than any other time. It practically knocked me down. Yes, the way we pray gets into our bones defines who we are. Now, we may not use the phrase Kyrie eleison. We may not say, Lord, have mercy, but we've already prayed in this way today. Forgive us as we forgive those. Lord, have mercy on us, and may we have mercy on others. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of our DNA in this church. The way we pray gets into our bones. I said in my email on Friday to the congregation, to the, to the whole church, that I don't always understand prayer. I hope that wasn't shocking for you to read, but there are many times when I pray, and I'm not sure I understand even why I'm praying in that moment. I don't always understand what it means to be in prayer for each other, although I discovered the last several days that indeed there's something about being connected with you all. All it takes is one prayer note, an email or a card that says, I prayed for you today, and there's something, again, I can't explain it, something mysterious about that connection. Mercy is at the heart of everything we do in the church. I was on retreat several years ago. This is back when I was pastoring in Kansas City with a group that we call uh, the Desert Brothers. We still meet every spring for retreat, three days, usually in the desert, although last spring we were down at Camp Akita in the new cabin that was built down there. But this time, several years ago, uh, I remember checking in. What we do is each of us is given an hour on the two afternoons that we spend together to check in on our, our lives, our families, our ministries, our churches, how things are going. Well, I was about 30 minutes into my check-in describing that I was feeling disconnected from God questioning my call to ministry, frustrated over the way I wasn't getting things done in, the, in a timely and, and, and thoughtful fashion in the church. When my friend Eric, one of the Desert Brothers, a fine pastor, he interrupted and he said, 
tell me about your prayer life. His voice was calm and kind, but he looked me in the eye and he spoke directly to me. Tell me about your prayer life. My tears were the answer. It took me a minute to choke out the response. Right now, I have no prayer life. On Saturday, yesterday, I rewrote the introduction to the sermon that you just heard. And once it was done, I stopped. Julie was off shopping out somewhere running some errands. And I just stopped in my chair, in my writing chair, and I said, Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. I know, I know, if I take even just a few seconds at the beginning of every day to pray a simple word like that, I'm a better pastor. And it's my commitment to do that very thing. Mercy is at the heart of this text that we heard today. It's mercy that is the, what my, my professor in seminary, Rolf Kinnerim, used to call the fuel that energizes the text, the fuel that moves it down the road, as it were. We encountered this story of Jesus uh, meeting up with a lawyer who wants to trick him. The word in the, te- in the reading was test. It could also be translated as tempt. He wants to tempt Jesus into getting into a fight. Really, what the lawyer wants to do is trick Jesus. It's a gotcha kind of question you know, one of those where he can humiliate and defeat Jesus and show off to his friends on Twitter or wherever uh, it was 2,000 years ago. Does it seem like our whole culture is one gigantic gotcha question, one gigantic gotcha argument constantly going on? I really appreciated Jim Long's sermon last week in, in the tent, especially at the time when he paused and he said, we just seem to be yelling over the top of each other. No one's learning, listening, and trying to understand. It just seems like we're in the gotcha moment all the time. One of my favorite preachers said years ago, before, before the internet ever came, came around, that there's no place for that kind of behavior in the church. It's not about defeat and humiliation. It's about listening and understanding. Well, the question is, how do I get eternal life? Jesus responds by, well, what does the law say? Well, the law says, love God and love your neighbor. You've answered well. Now go and live. Do you see what Jesus did there? The lawyer is trying to trick him, trying to trap him. Jesus instead turned it into a lesson on how to live. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the right answer. Now go and live that out. But the lawyer, he's not satisfied. He wants to be vindicated. The word there can easily mean he wants to win. He wants to prove he's smarter than Jesus. He wants to play gotcha. He just can't let go. Well, then who's my neighbor? He asks. In a sense, what he's really asking is, who's not my neighbor? Who, who's on the list that I don't have to love? I mean, come on, Jesus. Everyone knows there's people you're just never going to love. Who, who's on that list? And then Jesus tells this story about the one we call the Good Samaritan. By the way, you probably know this, but just as a refresher, Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. They'd been hating each other for 500 years, maybe longer, maybe all the way back to the time of Solomon, but for at least five centuries, Jews have hated Samaritans and vice versa. Why? Well, because 500 years before, the Jews who were taken into exile are finally returning back to the promised land, back to Judea, to Palestine. And they want to rebuild the temple 
in Jerusalem. Well, the Samaritans had been there. They weren't taken off into exile, and they basically say to the Jews coming back, well, you know, we've been worshiping on Mount Gerizim, and we sense God's presence and spirit there. God is just as holy there as anywhere else, and so we don't think you need to build. And by the way, Jews and Samaritans are very close. They're like, they're like almost like, like siblings, the way they believe and think and act and so forth. It's extremely close. Maybe that's part of the reason for the hatred. Well, the Jews say, no, we don't care. We're going to go and build the temple. And for 500 years, they're in conflict with each other because of a building project. <laughs> yeah. 500 years worth of animosity. And then Jesus tells the story. There are two religious leaders who hurry past the man in the ditch. Notice that he doesn't focus on them doesn't make excuses for them, doesn't explain why they're running by, doesn't blame them, doesn't criticize them, just notices that in the story there's two religious leaders who pass by quickly. And then he says, a Samaritan. Now, if you're in Jesus' audience in that day, you probably would have gasped. There would have been an audible gasp from the crowd. What's a Samaritan going to do? Is he going to beat the guy up more? Is he going to kill him? What's going to happen? And in the context of the story, if you're the guy in the ditch, you might be worried that the Samaritan's going to stop and beat you up worse, and maybe kill you. And now the spotlight shines bright. Here's the focus. He delays his journey. He exerts great energy to bind the wounds, to carry the man to a place of care, pays for the place to provide comfort and healing for this man, even promises and says, I will pay for any more treatments that need to happen beyond this. The Samaritan goes above and beyond what would be expected. And Jesus looks at the lawyer and says, who was the neighbor? The one who showed mercy. Notice, the lawyer can't even say the word Samaritan. The one who showed mercy. You know, this idea of mercy, as I said, is woven throughout all the stories and the teachings of Jesus found, especially in the Gospel of Luke. Another theologian I found this last week said that it's the cross in, in Luke's story and the way he tells the story of the cross that calls all people of faith who follow in the way of Jesus to be compassionate and kind, filled with mercy, to reach out to anyone who is, in, who is troubled and in need of care, support, and, and encouragement. And notice this. Luke is the only one who records the words of Jesus on the cross. Remember, he's been placed on it. As our friends in the Greek Orthodox Church take time to focus, he's elevated, planted in the ground, surrounded by his tormentors and torturers, surrounded by those who are laughing at him, mocking him, making fun of him, in terrible pain. He's been beaten and tortured. He's now dying in a horrific way. And what does Luke say that Jesus says? God forgive them. They do not know. They do not know what they are doing. Lord, have mercy. Kyrie. Eleison. The brilliant writer Wendell Berry, who I've met, by the way, he is as humble as he is brilliant. He wonders about this. He wonders if any of us could ever fully imitate the mercy of God? 
Could we imitate that mercy if it was going to be physically or spiritually or emotionally painful for us? Could we imitate that mercy in a way that might cause us to lose standing or lose our life? He tells the story of a man named Dirk Willems who in 1569 was convicted as a heretic. He was a, a Mennonite, but the Dutch ruling church convicted him as a heretic. Before sentencing could occur, though, he escaped and ran away. The court ordered a thief catcher, that's what they call them, this thief catcher to chase after him, to bring him back in for his sentencing. They ran and they ran and they ran until they finally came to a frozen lake. Dirk Willems had a pretty good lead over the thief catcher, but he heard a sound behind him, turned around to see the thief catcher falling beneath the ice that had crumbled beneath his feet. He's drowning. Wendell Berry asks as he tells this story, who is he now? An enemy? A neighbor? In this state in which he's drowning, if no one rescues him, is he one of what Jesus calls the least of these? What will Willems do? He returns, offers a hand, pulls the thief catcher, back to life. The thief catcher is reluctant to take Willems back to the court, but he's charged in order to do so. He does, brings the man back for sentencing, and they sentence him to death by a lingering fire. If you need an illustration of the dangers of Christian nationalism, Study the story of Dirk Willems. Barry, though, wonders if any of us can answer how we would respond to that situation and says essentially that we cannot. None of us will know until we're faced with it. None of us will know exactly what we would do if we would return to an enemy and treat him as a neighbor. None of us will know for sure until we're there. He suggests then in the church that we live the question. We simply live with the question as a sort of ongoing, continuing education, a place for us to ponder and share and wonder, how would I express Elios, mercy? Could I ever possibly do it? It's an impossible question to answer until we know in the moment how we react. Kyrie. He lays on. The church is at its best, I think, when we live the questions, when we wrestle together about what the answers may or may not be. And in the midst of that wrestling, we find time to pause and say, forgive us as we forgive. Forgive us as we forgive. Acknowledging is that the church is not perfect. I don't have to tell you that. You already know. Nor are your pastors perfect. Nor are the leaders of the church perfect. We've got our issues. We've got our things. The church, as Rachel Held Evans said once, is a messy place. But we keep showing up so that together we can find a way through the mess to the life that God invites us to experience. Now, sometimes, though, folks who aren't a part of a church, they see the mess that's going on and they just say, oh, boy, I don't really want any part of that. You know, one of the most dangerous things a preacher can do is go to a cocktail party where people know that he or she is a preacher. I was at one a while ago, 
And this guy came up to me and he said, I understand you're a pastor. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yes, that's true. I mean, somebody was talking about me earlier. He said, yes, that's, I said, yes, that's true. He said, well, you know, I don't go to church and I don't want to tell you why. And I'm thinking, I don't care. <laughs> I've heard these stories before. I know exactly what you're going to say and how you're going to answer this. Is there like a sign on my t-shirt that says, talk to me about why you don't like what I do? I really don't want to know anything. But I'm paid to be nice. So I listen, and he talks, and sure enough, he says, well, you preach this, and then you do this. You proclaim that, and then you do that. And you're just, just the church is full of hypocrites, and that's why I don't want to go. And I usually smile and say, well, just so you know, we have room for one more. <laughs> old joke, old bad joke, I'm sorry. But I love it because it's true. He's right. The guy at the cocktail party is right. We fall, we stumble, we grumble and we bumble along and we humble ourselves by our own foolish mistakes and I'm talking about your pastors and your leaders and everyone in the room. We know that already. But that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. That's why we gather in community to nurture to each other in the mess, to express Kyrie on, Lord, have mercy on us, and something can be renewed. I mentioned Rachel Held Evans a moment ago. Let's listen to her words. Or, there they are. The truth is, the church doesn't offer a cure. It doesn't offer a quick fix. The church offers death and resurrection. The church offers the messy, inconvenient, gut-wrenching, never-ending work of healing and reconciliation. The church offers grace. She speaks the truth. The church offers grace, death, and resurrection. It's a pattern that's repeated over and over and over and over again in the best of churches. The church offers grace. We are indeed the church that God has called us to be. When we give the world kindness and love, mercy and grace, even in the mess, who was the neighbor? The one who showed mercy. Go and do likewise. Amen.